Welcome to the fifth episode of the One in Four podcast, which stands for One in Four Adult Americans Has a Criminal Record. This is a show that seeks to humanize, educate, and elevate conversations about the reentry process of the formerly incarcerated. My name is Tim Nicholson, and I'm one of your co-hosts for this podcast. In this episode, we will focus on the topic of family and reentry. For a perspective on how incarceration affects families, and particularly children, we'll be speaking with Dr. Avon Hart Johnson, co-founder and president of DC Project Connect, a nonprofit organization in DC that provides support to families impacted by incarceration in the greater DC metro area. Dr. Hart Johnson is a scholar, author, and social activist. We'll also hear from a couple of people whose parents did time in prison when they were children and learn how this experience impacted them. According to the Sentencing Project, one in 12 American children, that's more than 5.7 million kids under age 18, have experienced parental incarceration at some point during their lives. Every time a person is incarcerated, his or her family is deeply affected. The impact is psychological, emotional, as well as financial. When children witness their parents being arrested, detained, or incarcerated, they experience extreme trauma that can last for decades. The psychosocial dimension of incarceration cannot be understated. Many immigrant children today are also being traumatized by current deportation tactics that criminalize and separate families. Some of the interviews in this episode are brought to you by Dave Sampe, Senior Advisor for the One in Four Podcast, and my co-host, Bea Spadaccini. This episode of the One in Four Podcast is brought to you with support from Circle Yoga in Washington, D.C. and the Circle Yoga Connect Initiative. This initiative seeks to work with social change organizations to offer yoga and mindfulness to people living in underserved communities. To find out more, check out circleyoga.com and search for the Circle Yoga Connect page. A special thanks goes to our loyal and super patient sound engineer and audio editor, Mike Malaysia. Thank you for helping us elevate these important conversations. Dr. Avon Hart Johnson, it is a pleasure to meet you and to learn about DC Project Connect. Can you tell us about the healing work that you do with families affected by mass incarceration? DC is a very unique area, and I'll, I'll share why we started the organization and the uniqueness of DC. First of all, Washington, DC no longer has a prison. There used to be an old uh, prison complex called uh, Lorton Prison. When that shut down in 2001, approximately uh, 5,500 individuals were transferred from D.C.'s prison system, which was in Lorton, across the nation, as far away as Washington State. So imagine the impact on family systems when your family is fragmented by someone who was incarcerated in D.C. They now are in, say, Pennsylvania or in California or in South Dakota. So how is it that a family can remain intact if they are separated by that level of fragmentation. It's a geographical separation. There are costs associated with families uh, not being able to keep or remain in contact because of, you know, the high telephone charges, um, etc. So we started DC Project Connect because we believe that families were somehow impacted on an adverse level because of that separation. As a researcher, Dr. Avon Hart wanted to go deeper into the effects of incarceration on families. So she began to interview African-American women in the D.C. area 
whose partners were incarcerated. She wanted to find out how they were coping and what type of support system these women and their families had, if any at all. The research culminated in a book that explores the psychological and social impacts of mass imprisonment on African-American women. One of Dr. Hart Johnson's main findings coming out of this research is a theory called Symbolic Imprisonment Grief and Coping Theory. And what that means is that the ladies that I interviewed were actually experiencing this level of vicarious imprisonment. And what does that mean? It means that with the overwhelming situations and crises that occurred in their life, number one, they were socially isolating, as vicarious imprisonment might suggest, that imprisonment means that you are somehow in bondage. And it might be uh, conscious or, or unconscious, but the point is, is that they were withdrawing socially, you know, intentionally, or they were doing so because they felt as though they were ostracized or stigmatized. So you've got this component of vicarious imprisonment where you feel like, you know, I'm socially isolated. I'm in my own prison. I am uh, not good enough to, um, to be with other folks that aren't like me, or I'm going to be judged guilty by association. The other thing, other part of the theory is grief. So there's a there's a very heavy underpinning of grief, meaning that these individuals who I interviewed suggested that they were feeling grief as if someone had died. And I had one woman tell me that she wished that her husband was dead because he was serving a life sentence and her life is always, you know, on hold with no closure. And so they're tethered to this whole experience and this big secret of having someone incarcerated. And imagine what it feels like to never live your truth, to feel like you're always living a lie. And that's because of the stigma that shrouds this whole idea of incarceration. By interviewing hundreds of women whose partners were in prison, Dr. Hart Johnson was able to identify gap areas where psychological and practical support was needed. The outcomes of this research inform the programs offered by DC Project Connect, which include crisis intervention, advocacy, and mentoring during the reentry process. When your family system goes through a crisis of incarceration, there are several uh, crisis points that occur within the lives of these individuals. So imagine this, follow me through this continuum. The first thing would be the arrest. That's a crisis. You know, a lot of people scramble and they try to figure out, well, am I going to pay the rent? Am I going to pay the house note? Or do I retain a lawyer? The second thing might be the actual incarceration itself. So you've got the impact of trying to make that adjustment within the household. How are you going to maintain the house? That other person that was incarcerated may have been a form of income. So and then also, how are you going to make the adjustment by having the absent person, you know, still integrated in your life, whether it's, you know, through a telephone or through uh, letters, that person is still involved in your life. People reach out to us by way of our website. And what we learned is that when people are in crisis, if they can have a facilitated conversation about some of the options and some of the choices that they might want to consider, 
ultimately they will make the best decision based on their lives because they are the subject matter experts of their own lives. So what we do is facilitate a conversation about how things might play out if they were to follow one path versus the other. For an example, the person that's struggling to figure out whether or not they should um, pay their rent or retain a lawyer. Ultimately, they have to make that decision, but they need to consider the consequences of doing so. So we try to to provide a level of triage, if you will, for the family system during those kinds of crisis points. The second thing that we do is we advocate for social change, and that's informed by our research, and it's informed by our outreach within the community. Avon, you're a trained behavioral scientist and more, because I know you're also a professor and have many other talents. Can you tell us about the psychological and social impact of imprisonment on families and on communities from a behavioral science perspective? Yes, sure. So let's start with this premise that every family and individual will have a unique set of circumstances, obviously, because their lives and the circumstances centered around uh, their situation may be different. Um, The greater the attachment, the greater the loss. And I I don't want to say that that's an exact correlation, but think about it. If there is a significant attachment within the family, such as a mom that was close to her children, and then she's incarcerated, that child is going to feel um, a great amount of loss if there was a tight or a secure bond. So that might bring about a number of different uh, psychological outcomes such as trauma, grief, um, stress, you know, somatic, um, physical related um, outcomes. So to put that into real terms, um, imagine a child that loses her mom. And so what might happen is that that child may become withdrawn especially if he or she has not been told where the parent is. So oftentimes what happens, the situation around incarceration is so complex because think about the dynamics or just try to imagine what happens when someone is arrested in the household. That is a complete disruption to what's going on within that family systems. And what we know from family systems theory is that when there is a disruption to the family system, the the family system will try to work to try to absorb the crisis and try to work its way back into some sense of normalcy and balance. And so what it's doing is it's drawing all of its resources, its internal resources to try to grapple with and try to figure out how to regain some sense of balance. Now imagine a child within that particular system where he or she may not have ever been told where the missing parent is. So now this this sense of ambiguous loss, which means that someone is psychologically still present in your life, all the reminders, all the symbolisms, all the expectations of a mommy is still there, but physically they're absent. Dave Sampe, Senior Advisor for the One in Four podcast, Ash Charnell, whose mother is Lashana Thompson, founder and executive director of The Wire, or women involved in reentry efforts. What it was like to grow up with an incarcerated parent when she was a child. 
her being locked up was just like one of the many issues. You talking about the crack epidemic, then you talking about like so that all of that stuff as a whole just pretty much tore families apart. So I didn't just suffer from my mother being incarcerated. Like I suffered from my father being incarcerated as well due to him selling drugs and abusive stepmother. The kids that I went to school with, they were toxic. Just being in an environment where it was like a life or death, like you didn't go to school to learn. Like you basically, you just went to school to get out of the house. I stayed from place to place. I stayed, I went to like 11 different schools. And the hardest time um, of it probably would have been between 14 and 18 when um, I was kind of like really coming into the realization of what was even happening around me. Because when you're a kid, like it's just all about being happy and all of that stuff. Like you, you realize the trauma, but you, you don't really focus on it as much as adults do. So when I got hit about 14, that was when I really started to come to the realization, you know, like, oh shit, I don't have a mother. Um, and my stepmother is abusive on top of that. Like, that was when I started to really become jealous of other girls that had their mothers. So I started to rebel. Charnell told Dave that she's been on her own since she was 16 years old. She had her first child at the age of 17 when she was a senior in high school. And despite the challenge of being a young mother, she managed to graduate on time. She went to nursing school right after she got her high school diploma and moved into her own apartment at the age of 19. Charnell shared that for years, she was very angry with the world and had to do a lot of work to address that. Dave also interviewed Lashana, Charnell's mom. You talk about reconnecting with family. Mm -hmm. What were the challenges um, that you faced reconnecting with your own family, with your own children? And, um, and who took care of your children while you were away? What was that, how was that like? How did that affect you? So my, um, first of all, when I was in prison, because we don't have a prison system here in D.C., I spent the majority of my time in Danbury, Connecticut, which was an eight-hour drive. So it was a 16-hour round trip. So I got to see my kids about maybe once a year. And that was as a result of our place, D.C., or some of my friends who might get out and go get my kids and bring them back. Um, so... My daughter was three years old and my son was 10 months old. And um, by the time I came home, Chanel was like 21, Lante was like 18, 19. And um, the biggest challenge for me was rebuilding my confidence to be a parent to my son. Because when I went to prison, I was a teen mom, which was very traumatic. And um, my life was basically like, you know, I was basically living, um, how would I say, a delinquent lifestyle. So it's not like I was an ideal mom. So I was a teen mom with two kids, 19, dropped out of school, no job, you know, just deeply immersed in a life of crime. And then I landed myself in prison. I never really got a chance to learn how to be a mom. But the idea is that you're a woman, so you know how to be a mom. So we expect you to come home and get with the program. And so my cousin, who was raising my son at the time, and even though he was a young adult, because he has a disability, he'll always be living with someone. So he has epilepsy and he has um, developmental delays and all sorts of things. So he'll always be living with someone. He'll always be codependent on someone in his life. And my cousin was very anxious about me getting custody of my son. She was not patient at all. 
despite the fact that I was homeless, despite the fact that I was trying to complete my undergraduate degree, unemployed, returning to a new city that had changed tremendously, trying to, you know, re-socialize and create a new lifestyle opposed to the one that I used to live, none of that made a difference to her. Her thing was, I have raised your son while you was in prison, and you're home now, and I need you to handle your business. And as a woman, especially as a black woman, I expect that you know how to do that. One of the services that DC Project Connect offers is mentoring upon reentry from prison, the kind of support that Lashana could have used when she came out, and also a service that her own organization, The Wire, offers. My co-host, Bea Spadaccini, asked Dr. Avon Hart Johnson about the nature of her reentry work with the formerly incarcerated individuals. We partner uh, volunteers from the community, the business community, or other organizations with the Fairview Residential Reentry Center, which is uh, also referred to as a halfway house, where women are making their transition home from prison, or they may be housed there because they are in some way affiliated with the justice system, whether it's through DOC or the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And so what we do is we bring volunteers into that setting, and we have uh, a number of of life skills exercises, um, problem-solving techniques, uh, social skills building, and those kinds of things. Dr. Avon Hart and her team of volunteers also help children process what it means to have an incarcerated parent, how to cope with the stigma that is often attached to that experience, and even prepare them for a parental visit inside a prison. For this purpose, Dr. Avon Hart Johnson created a children's book with the title of Jamie's Big Visit, that features a bear that young readers can identify with. The book targets children between the ages of three and 10 years old. Jamie the Bear um, is a chronicle of what it means to have a close relationship with a dad and the the dad um, goes to prison. And so what the book does in a very delicate and sensitive way, you travel with Jamie through his journey in preparing to visit his dad in prison. And it's a lovely um, book and the graphic illustrations are actually phenomenal. But you follow Jamie through his pathway to the first visit and he, you know, experiences the prison environment. And what it does, it gives a visual in a very user-friendly way about what it's like to visit prison. And it actually walks the child through even what it uh, means to go through a metal detector and to actually put Um, his or her items into a locker and go through the actual visit. The other thing that it does is that it it gives hope to a child when they see themselves in Jamie's character, they think, oh, I can get through this. Jamie got through it. I can get through this. Or now I understand because I read Jamie's big visit or mom read Jamie's big visit to me. Um, What I love about the overall story is that when you read the story, you recognize at the end, it's okay to laugh. It's okay to smile. That a child can, in some way, return back to the normalcy of a child. Yes, there is going to be life events, but you can recover from it, and it's okay to be a child. It's 
okay to laugh and okay to smile. Have you used the book quite a bit with the families? Yes, I have. I've used the the book in in multiple uh, ways. Um, There are times where I do readings for large groups of children who have been impacted by parental incarceration. And so what I do is I I make it an interactive session as I'm reading and we talk about um, emotions such as anger, sadness, um, uh, even being happy and 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 the fear, you know, when when a parent is taken away. And so what we do is we talk through and we give expression and we give voice. Now, one of the things that's very important, and especially if you know anything about trauma, trauma is both psychological, but it's also physical or somatic. And so what we understand about trauma is that sometimes children have I'll I'll use simplistic terms, trauma trapped inside because they don't know how to articulate what they're feeling. And so some scientists suggest that the, the reason that the trauma remains, you know, stuck within is because they don't know how to give expression to that and to release it and to make meaning of it or to even discuss it with those who might help them to make meaning of it. And then some children are not developmentally ready or able to articulate what they're feeling. So when you go through the interactive activities with Jamie's Big Visit, which are the, you know, the the activities that we have as a companion, children can give expression through using their hands to or, or their facial expressions to say, okay, this is what a smile looks like. And then we might walk them through, well, how do you, if you're angry, how do you re- you return back to the state of smiling. When Randell's mom was sent to prison, he was only eight years old. He has five siblings, three older and two younger. At the time, there was no such book like Jamie's Big Visit that could have helped Randell and his siblings process what their family was going through and how they were feeling. The children were sent to live with their maternal grandmother for the first five years and later with an uncle. It was only when they were living with their uncle that they were told what had happened and were allowed to reestablish communication and visit her in prison. I mean, it was very difficult. I think for the five years I lived with my grandmother, we, my grandmother really didn't mention my mother at all. We never visited, we never talked about her, we never got letters from her, even though she sent letters throughout that entire five years. But my grandmother wasn't, you know, the kindest person either. So, you know, she had our moments where, you know, she would be enraged, you know, she would say horrible things to us. And I think that she may not have liked her daughter either. So it was a very difficult situation because we really couldn't mention our mother at all. It was just like she vanished. And we never really knew what had happened really when she went to prison for like five years. Do you remember the first time you visited your mother in in prison? Yeah, so I visited her when I was 13. And she was such a beautiful woman growing up. She was amazingly beautiful. I would always say that she kind of looked like Angelina Jolie. She was that beautiful. But when I saw her for the first time in prison, I was like shocked. Like she, you know, obviously time had taken, you know, wear on her look. And so like she, you know, to me, looked really like almost like, you know, she had a frizzy hair and like, you know, uh, she looked older. 
and not having seen someone from like eight until like 13 and it's just like all that time in between just passed it was kind of shocking to see her in that condition um and that's i remember just like staring at me like this can't be my mother when she walked out i was like this can't be her like she looks nothing like the woman that i used to know um or who used to take care of us so it was very difficult and i remember it was like me and my other four siblings Malka brought all of us there and I remember getting patted down and then like, you know, checking to see if we had any drugs or any like, you know, weapons on us or anything that, you know, could be seen as like, you know, a threat to, you know, the prison. And then we went into the room, all four of us. We didn't get physical contact because, you know, um, we were still minors at the time. And so we had to like visit her through a pixie glass. And that was our, that was our our first visit and it was only two hours we drove like seven hours to get there where was the prison where was she incarcerated that first time that you met her uh she was incarcerated near dallas uh near waco texas like in the middle of nowhere many prisons in texas are in the middle of nowhere so you drive many many miles and sometimes you can request a special visit for four hours but at that time we didn't know that if you live a certain amount of miles away you can request a longer visit so we just took that long seven hour drive and got a two hour visit and that was like pretty much it so um were you able to establish and maintain a relationship with your mother while she was incarcerated and if you could explain a little bit about besides going to visit her but in terms of letters and what that was like and so during that time um of writing her and visiting her i think we probably visited her probably four or five times just because it was such an expense and it was such a you know so much time that we had to take out to go visit her so we wrote a lot i mean i think i wrote her for almost 10, 13 years throughout her time in prison. Once I got to like have a relationship with her when my uncle, you know, allowed that to happen. So I wrote her all throughout high school, all throughout college and really a good part into grad school. Did she write back? And what was your, your correspondence? What was it about? So yeah, she definitely wrote back and forth. I mean, we talked about, you know, forgiveness and what we wanted and goals. And I told her about what I was doing in college and grad school in high school as well. Um, but we basically talked about, you know, what she was dealing with when she was younger. And I learned a lot about my family history, things I really didn't know because my family is very private. So a lot of things I didn't know that shaped her life and shaped my life is what I learned in those letters. And I have hundreds of those letters. So, for instance, what do you think affected her most in her growing up? Well, I think it's like a generational thing. So it was like things that happened way back in history before I could even be in the picture. And so, you know, I think my mother, like her mother as well, probably went through some very severe trauma that they probably never healed. And so it just kind of like got pushed on and, you know, onto her and then she pushed it onto us. And when you never fix that cycle of trauma, just kind of continue on and on and on. And I think that basically is what it is. Randell's mother was sentenced to 12 years on a charge of child molestation, a label that carries even more stigma. Randell says that her actions were a result of years of drug addiction and that he and his siblings have forgiven her. Randell wrote a letter when her first parole hearing came up, but it was denied. When her second parole hearing came, 17 years into her prison sentence, he and other relatives wrote again, and this time she was granted parole, and she was released into a transitional home. However, her health has been deteriorating steadily, despite only being 46 years old. It has been hard for Randell to come to terms with this reality. A lot of issues 
health issues in particular affected her while she was in prison and she didn't get the right sort of help that she needed. And I think that maybe she didn't take care of herself as well as she could have as well while she was in prison. So a lot of those health issues are coming back um, and really affecting her quality of life right now. Yeah, she's pretty young and then just a lot of health issues happening with her heart. And then, you know, she had a surgery because she broke her ankle and had to get an amputation. So it's just been a lot of hard things. And this is only like two years outside of prison. And it, we had a lot of dreams and what, what she was going to do. And like, I didn't have, you know, these amazing, you know, out of the sky, like dreams. It's just like basically, oh, she's going to get a job and maybe get a place for herself. Randell's story highlights the profound impact that incarceration has on children and the emotional weight they often carry for the rest of their lives. Bea asked Dr. Hart Johnson to talk a bit more about the impact of trauma on the family system and on the community at large. The family system is the very basic unit of a neighborhood or a community. And so when you have healthy, thriving families, you, you are probably likely to have reduced crime. You have um, higher levels of employment and obviously stronger families. And then it also produces the opportunities for children um, education-wise, you know, and, um, and, and overall, you know, a thriving neighborhood. Think about what it's like to be in a community where there are high levels of unemployment and high levels of incarceration and a high level of families that are impacted by mass incarceration. And think about that level and the conditioning that it provides. How do you get a group or a community or restore a community back to a healthy, thriving, you know, community? It, Obviously, there are, it, it's necessary to, to, to raise the awareness. Thus, the reason for um, one of our prongs is community relations and making sure that we raise the level of community awareness so that they understand that healthy communities start with healthy families. Um, I always tell individuals that the family is the 24-7 the support when the social services offices and human services offices and reentry offices are closed. That family system is there to support that individual. So, and they might be the first um, form of contact to talk someone off the ledge who is thinking about going back to crime or going back to using, you know, misusing substances or someone that just needs the extra confidence, you know, to go on an interview, to believe that they can do it. So families are critical when it comes to providing that um, support system. Unfortunately, many families and entire communities have been devastated by the system of mass incarceration. And this is why alternative support systems must be put into place. For my family in general, it really has affected my family deeply because, you know, I, my mother was in prison, my brother was in prison, my uncle, two, three uncles were in prison. So, like, my whole family has just been eaten up by this whole prison system. And for what I've seen, it's been very minor crimes for the majority of them, like marijuana charges. And now the tide is changing, but their lives are already been affected, you know, and basically ruined, you know. So they really can't do anything. And so... That, that's what this system has really done to a lot of families, not just mine. One of the things that we know is that we talk about this idea of intergenerational incarceration, the risk of multiple families affected by incarceration, the father, 
the son, the grandson, you know, so that's multiple generations um, of incarceration. We can offset that risk by support systems. That's where communities play a vital role with children. After school programs for those children who are at risk so that they have a place to go to and not only just to have a place to go to so that they have an extended support system outside of the family unit. One of the things that um, that I recently was trained in is uh, circle keeping. And the idea of circle keeping is to, when the person comes home, you know, or is preparing uh, to transition home, the idea of circle keeping is to form a network of people, whether it's family or not, who will be the support system and is willing to commit to supporting the person's re-entry. For an example, one person might be a social worker. The other one might be a probation officer. The other one might be clergy, um, a friend, you know, and so you form the support network for individuals. When it comes to children of incarcerated parents, it is important to also talk about resilience. Despite the many challenges he faced while growing up, Randell has become a successful young man who has defied the odds, went to college, completed graduate school, and started a prestigious international career. Before departing for his overseas post, he had the opportunity to spend four days with his mom. Last time I talked to her, about three months ago, um, we sat under an oak tree and just like talked for hours and hours and hours. And I visited her for four days. And that was the longest time that I've actually visited her since, you know, the 17 years that she was incarcerated and even now in halfway house um, in a nursing facility. So we just sat there and talked under the oak tree about our lives and what we wanted, her life, because I didn't know a lot about her life at all. We've always had like two hour visits and every, every time that I've been around her, you have someone in the back of your, your head telling you you have five minutes left. But this was a different experience because no one was telling me that I had five minutes left. It was just my time to learn as much as I could with those four days that I had. And I learned a lot about her and like, you know, her dreams. And she got to learn a lot, a lot about me. To find out more about how to get involved with DC Project Connect, you can check out their website which is www.dcprojectconnect.com. You will find many resources through the website. And of course, you can also order Dr. Johnson's book, Jamie's First Visit, which is also available via Amazon. Remember to follow us on Twitter at 1in4podcast, all letters, no numbers, and follow us on Facebook. You can subscribe to this podcast via Apple iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts.